My brethren and sisters, it becomes my responsibility to open this session in speaking to you. I seek the direction of the Holy Spirit. I sense the tremendous responsibility of speaking to hundreds of thousands of Latter-day Saints, perhaps even millions, across the world. I thank you for your gracious hospitality to us. Wherever we meet with you, it is truly a humbling experience to be the recipient of such generous kindness. You write letters of appreciation which bring encouragement. You are trying to live the gospel and rear your families in light and truth. You are truly Latter-day Saints, and I am profoundly grateful for the opportunity to be one with you and to partake of your fellowship and your love. Sister Hinckley and I were recently involved in a regional conference in Rexburg, Idaho. We had not been to Yellowstone National Park for many years. We decided to drive to the conference and on Monday return home by way of Yellowstone. In 1988, terrible forest fires raged there. Each day, the news media brought us graphic reports of the intensity of the fires as they raced over thousands of acres, destroying millions of trees. The flames finally burned out, and people literally mourned over the desolate picture of countless lodgepole pines, their tops burned and the straight, scorched trunks standing like solemn grave markers in a crowded cemetery. But when we visited there about a month ago, we saw something of captivating interest. The dead pines still stood, but between the burned trees, new seedlings have sprung from the ground, millions of them. Evidently, when fire hit the treetops, the pine cones exploded, scattering seed to the ground. There is a new generation of trees now young and beautiful and filled with promise. The old trees eventually will fall, and the new ones will grow tall to create a forest of great beauty and usefulness. As we drove through the park, I thought of the wonders of nature, of the rhythm of our lives. We grow old, and I am among those who have done so. Our vitality and our powers slacken. But a new generation is at our feet. These are children. These two are sons and daughters of God whose time has come to take their place on earth. They are like the new growth in the park, young, tender, sensitive, beautiful, and full of promise. As Tagore, the poet of India, once observed, every child comes with the message that God is not discouraged of man. Children are the promise of the future. They are the future itself. The tragedy is that so many are born to lives of sorrow, of hunger, of fear, and trouble, and want. Children become the victims in so many, many cases of man's inhumanity to man. In recent months, we have seen them on our television screens. The children of Somalia, their bodies bloated, their eyes staring with the stare of death. More recently, we have seen them in Rwanda, 
the victims of raging cholera and vicious and unrelenting hunger. Uncounted numbers have died. These were the promise of a new and better generation in these lands where disease, malnutrition, bullets, and neglect have mowed them down like tender plants before the sharp blade of the sickle. Why are men so vicious as to bring about the causes that lead to such terrible fratricidal conflict? Great, I believe, will be their tribulation in the day of judgment, when they must stand before the Almighty accused of the suffering and destruction of these little ones. I am grateful for kind and generous people of many faiths and persuasions across the world whose hearts reach out in sympathy, many of whom give freely of their substance, their time, even their presence to help those in such terrible distress. I am grateful that we as a Church have done much of significance, as President Monson pointed out last night, in sending medicines, food and clothing, and blankets for warmth and shelter to those who suffer so terribly and particularly to children who otherwise most certainly would die. Why should they suffer so much in so many places? Surely God, our eternal Father, must weep when He sees the abuse that is heaped upon His little ones, for I am satisfied they hold a special place in His grand design. That place was confirmed when His Son, the Savior of the world, walked the dusty roads of Palestine, and they brought unto Him also infants that He would touch them. But when His disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer little children to come unto Me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. How great is our responsibility! How serious the responsibility of Christian people and men and women of goodwill everywhere to reach out to ease the plight of suffering children, to lift them from the rut of despair in which they walk. Of course, such suffering is not new. Plagues of disease have swept in centuries past across continents. War has caused the death of millions who were totally innocent. Children have been bartered and traded. They have been used as tools by vicious masters. They have mined coal for long hours day after day in the dark and cold depths of the earth. They have worked in sweatshops and be, been exploited like cheap merchandise. Surely, after all of the history we have read, after all of the suffering of which we have been told, after all of the exploitation of which we are aware, we can do more than we are now doing to lift the blight that condemns millions of children to lives that know little of happiness that are tragically brief and that are filled with pain. And we need not travel halfway across the earth to find weeping children. 
Countless numbers of them cry out in fear and loneliness from the evil consequences of moral transgression, neglect, and abuse. I speak plainly, perhaps indelicately, but I know of no other way to make clear a matter about which I feel so strongly. One major problem is the now common phenomenon of children bearing children, of children without fathers. Somehow there seems to be in the minds of many young men, and some not so young, the idea that there is no relationship between the begetting of a child and responsibility for its life thereafter. Every young man should realize that whenever a child is begotten outside the bonds of marriage, it has resulted from violation of a God-given commandment reaching at least as far back as Moses. Further, let it be known clearly and understood without question that responsibility inevitably follows and that this responsibility will continue throughout life. Though the mores of our contemporary society may have crumbled to a point where sexual transgression is glossed over or is regarded as acceptable, there will someday be accountability before the God of heaven for all that we do in violation of his commandments. I believe further that a sense of accountability must at some time bear upon every man who has fathered a child and then abandoned responsibility for its care. He must sometimes stop and wonder whatever became of the child he fathered, of the boy or girl who is flesh of his flesh and soul of his soul. The burdens that fall upon a young woman who alone must rear her child are unbelievably heavy and consuming. They are likewise heavy upon society through taxes levied to meet the needs of such children and their mothers. In the United States, in the six years between 1985 and 1990, estimated public outlays related to teenage childbearing totaled more than $120 billion. Of unmarried teens who give birth, 73% will be on welfare within four years. That is almost three out of every four. In 1991, federal and state expenditures for aid to families with dependent children totaled $20 billion plus administrative costs of another $2.6 billion. The obstacles facing children born and reared in such circumstances are formidable, to say the least. The answer is straightforward. It lies in adherence to the principles of the gospel and the teaching of the Church. It lies in self-discipline. Would that every youth might realize this and be governed accordingly. There would be so much less of heartache and heartbreak. Its importance cannot be overemphasized because the consequences are so serious and so everlasting. I realize that notwithstanding all of the teaching that can be done, there will be those who will not heed and will go their willful way, 
only to discover to their shock and dismay that they are to become parents while they are scarcely older than children themselves. Abortion is not the answer. This only compounds the problem. It is an evil and repulsive escape that will someday bring regret and remorse. Marriage is the more honorable thing. This means facing up to responsibility. It means giving the child a name with parents who together can nurture, protect, and love. When marriage is not possible, experience has shown that adoption, difficult though this may be for the young mother, may afford a greater opportunity for the child to live a life of happiness. Wise and experienced professional counselors and prayerful bishops can assist in these circumstances. Then there is the terrible, inexcusable, and evil phenomenon of physical and sexual abuse. It is unnecessary, it is unjustified, it is indefensible. In terms of physical abuse, I have never accepted the principle of spare the rod and spoil the child. I will be forever grateful for a father who never laid a hand in anger upon his children. Somehow he had the wonderful talent to let them know what was expected of them and to give them encouragement in achieving it. I am persuaded that violent fathers produce violent sons. I am satisfied that such punishment in most instances does more damage than good. Children don't need beating. They need love and encouragement. They need fathers to whom they can look with respect rather than fear. Above all, they need example. I recently read a biography of George H. Brimhall, who at one time served as president of Brigham Young University. Concerning him, someone said that he raised his boys with a rod, a fishing rod. That says it all. And then <laughs> there is the terrible, vicious practice of sexual abuse. It is beyond understanding. It is an affront to the decency that ought to exist in every man and woman. It is a violation of that which is sacred and divine. It is destructive in the lives of children. It is reprehensible and worthy of the most severe condemnation. Shame on any man or woman who would sexually abuse a child. In doing so, the abuser not only does the most serious kind of injury, he or she also stands condemned before the Lord. It was the Master himself who said, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. How could he have spoken in stronger terms? If there be any within the sound of my voice who may be guilty of such practice, I urge you with all of the capacity of which I am capable to stop it, to run from it, to get help, to plead with the Lord for forgiveness and, make, and make amends to those whom you have offended. God will not be mocked concerning the abuse of his little ones. 
When the resurrected Lord appeared on this hemisphere and taught the people, the record states that as he spoke to them, he wept. And he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. And when he had done this, he wept again. There is no more tender and beautiful picture in all of sacred writing than this simple language describing the love of the Savior for little children. Of all the joys of life, none other equals that of happy parenthood. Of all the responsibilities with which we struggle, none other is so serious. To rear children in an atmosphere of love, security, and faith is the most rewarding of all challenges. The good results from such efforts becomes life's most satisfying compensation. President Joseph F. Smith said on one occasion, after all, to do well those things which God ordained to be the common lot of all mankind is the truest greatness. To be a successful father or a successful mother is greater than to be a successful general or a successful statesman. One is universal and eternal greatness, the other is ephemeral. I am satisfied that no other experiences of life draw us nearer to heaven than those that exist between happy parents and happy children. My plea, and I wish I were more eloquent in voicing it, is a plea to save the children. Too many of them walk with pain and fear and loneliness and despair. Children need sunlight. They need happiness. They need love and nurture. They need kindness and refreshment and affection. Every home, regardless of the cost of the house, can provide an environment of love which will be an environment of salvation. May I, in conclusion, read to you a letter that came the other day? It speaks of the kind of home I have in mind. The writer says, I thought I would write to you to let you know that life is good. I sit here looking out the window at the beautiful mountains. The apple tree in the backyard is full of almost ripe fruit. Two cooing doves that we have been feeding and watching all summer are eating at the bird feeder, and the weather has finally cooled down. My husband and I have been married for 26 years have five wonderful children, two sons-in-law, and a peaceful, happy home. I marvel at the love of the Lord in our lives. It runs through our marriage and family like a thread. I have nothing to complain about, and most of my fasts are thankful fasts. My husband is in the stake presidency, and I teach the gospel doctrine class. We have always worked in the Church and always enjoyed it. We enjoy the gospel, and it is marvelous to watch our children growing up to do the same. And so I just wanted you to know that there is much love, joy, contentment, fun, and gratitude in our life. Is that picture too good to be true? The writer doesn't think so. Is it too idealistic? I think not. I know nothing of the size of the house or the yard. That is immaterial. It is the spirit in that home, the extension of the love of a good man who holds the priesthood of God and a good woman whose heart is filled with true affection and gratitude. 
and of children born of a sound marriage who have been nurtured and reared in an environment of peace and faith and security. You may not have a mountain to look at where you live. You may not have an apple tree in the backyard. You may not have birds that feed at your porch. But you can have one another as husband and wife, father and mother, and children who live together with love, respect, self-discipline, and prayer, if you please. The old forest burns and dies, but there is a new one at its roots, one filled with wondrous potential. It is a thing beautiful to look upon and destined to grow. It is the handiwork of God, a part of His divine plan. Save the children. Too many suffer and weep. God bless us to be mindful of them, to lift them and guide them as they walk in dangerous paths, to pray for them, to bless them, to love them, to keep them secure until they can run with strength of their own. I pray in the name of Him who loves them so very much. Even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Three weeks ago, I was assigned to host an open house at the Orlando Temple for leaders representing the clergy, press, government, education, and business. Before I escorted these prominent guests through the temple, I explained to them the position and basic doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I wanted them to know why the gospel of Jesus Christ was restored to the earth through the Prophet Joseph Smith, so they could understand the divine purpose and the eternal significance of the temple. My message this morning is to remind Church members what we have and to invite non-members to understand the need for the restoration of the gospel. The mortal ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was comparatively brief. He lived only 33 years, and His ministry was only three years. But in those three years He taught the human family everything that is necessary to receive all of the blessings our Father in Heaven has in store for His children. He concluded his mortal ministry with the single most compassionate and significant service in the history of the world, the Atonement. One of the most important accomplishments of the Savior was the establishment of His Church upon the earth. Paul taught that Christ gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. When Jesus called His twelve apostles, He laid His hands upon them, ordained them, and conferred upon them the authority to act and to govern His Church. Peter is commonly understood to have become the chief apostle or the president of the Church after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Early Christians endured the challenges of persecution and hardship. Peter and his brethren had a difficult time holding the Church together and keeping the doctrine pure. They traveled extensively 
and wrote to one another about problems they were facing. But information moved so slowly and the Church and its teachings were so new that heading off false teachings before they became firmly entrenched was difficult. The New Testament indicates that the early Apostles worked hard to preserve the Church that Jesus Christ left to their care and keeping. But they knew their efforts would ultimately be in vain. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian Saints who were anxiously anticipating the second coming of Christ, that that day shall not come, except their coming of falling away first. He also warned Timothy that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. And Peter presupposed the falling away, or the apostasy, when he spoke of the times of refreshing that would come before God would again send Jesus Christ, before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Eventually, with the known exception of John the Beloved, Peter and his fellow apostles were martyred. The Apostle John and members of the Church struggled for survival in the face of horrifying oppression. To their everlasting credit, Christianity did survive and was truly a prominent force by the end of the second century A.D. Many valiant saints were instrumental in helping Christianity to endure. Despite the significance of the ministries of these saints, they did not hold the same apostolic authority Peter and the other apostles had received through ordination under the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. When that authority was lost, men began looking to other sources for doctrinal understanding. As a result, many plain and precious truths were lost. History tells us, for example, of a great council held in A.D. 325 in Nicaea. By this time Christianity had emerged from the dank dungeons of Rome to become the state religion of the Roman Empire. But the Church still had problems, chiefly the inability of Christians to agree among themselves on basic points of doctrine. To resolve differences, Emperor Constantine called together a group of Christian bishops to establish once and for all the official doctrines of the Church. Consensus did not come easily. Opinions on such basic subjects as the nature of God were diverse and deeply felt, and debate was spirited. Decisions were not made by inspiration or revelation, but by majority vote and some disagreeing factions split off and formed new churches. Similar doctrinal councils were held later in A.D. 451, 787, and 1545 with similarly divisive results. The beautiful simplicity of Christ's gospel was under attack from an enemy that was even more destructive than the scourges and the crosses of early Rome. 
the philosophical meanderings of uninspired men. The doctrine became based more on popular opinion than on revelation. The period of time was called the Dark Ages. They were dark largely because the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ had been lost. Then in 1517, the Spirit moved Martin Luther, a German priest who was disturbed at how far the Church had strayed from the gospel as taught by Christ. His work led to a reformation, a movement that was taken up by other such visionaries as John Calvin, Huldrych Swingli, John Wesley, and John Smith. I believe these reformers were inspired to create a religious climate in which God could restore lost truths and priesthood authority. Similarly, God inspired the earlier explorers and colonizers of America and the framers of the Constitution of the United States to develop a land and governing principles to which the gospel could be restored. By 1820, the world was ready for the restitution of all things, spoken of by Peter and all God's holy prophets since the world began. At this time, religious excitement was sweeping across the countryside in upstate New York. Ministers from different denominations vied zealously for the loyalty and for the faithful in villages and towns, including Palmyra, the home of the family of Joseph Smith, Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith. The Smith family followed this religious excitement, and members of the family were proselyted to various faiths. Mother Smith and three of the children, Hiram, Samuel, and Sophrina, joined one church, while Father Smith and his eldest son, Alvin, affiliated with another. When 14-year-old Joseph, Jr. considered which church to join, he investigated each denomination carefully, listening to the respective ministers and trying to sort out the truth. He knew there was one faith, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, but which was the one he did not know. In the midst of this war of tumult and opinions, Joseph Smith, Jr. wrote later, I often said to myself, What is to be done? Who of all these parties are right? Or are they all wrong together? If any one of them be right, which is it? And how shall I know it? Young Joseph looked for answers to his questions in the scriptures. While reading in the Bible, he came upon a simple direct admonition in the epistle of James. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Joseph reflected, Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of a man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. For how to act, I did not know. And unless I could get more wisdom than I then had, I would never know. 
with the simple faith of youth and motivated by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Joseph decided to go into a grove of trees near his home and put the promise in James to to the test. On a beautiful, clear spring morning, Joseph retired to the woods. He paused when he arrived at a quiet and secluded spot. He looked around to make sure he was alone. Then he knelt and began to pray. No sooner had he done so than an overwhelming feeling of darkness swept over him, as if some evil power was trying to dissuade him. Rather than surrender, Joseph intensified his pleas to God, and God himself responded. Reading from Joseph's account, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defined all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. I testify those beings were God, our Heavenly Father, and his resurrected Son, Jesus Christ, and one of the most supernal spiritual manifestations of all time. They told Joseph he should join none of the existing churches. Their mission accomplished, the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, departed, leaving young Joseph physically drained, but spiritually enriched with exciting restored truth. He knew with certainty that God, our Heavenly Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, were real, for He had seen them. He knew they were two separate, distinct individuals. He knew that no church on the face of the earth had the authority of the priesthood to act in the name of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most important lesson young Joseph learned in the sacred grove is this significant eternal truth. The heavens are not sealed. God does communicate with mortals. He loves us today just as much as He loved those who lived anciently. What comfort that sweet assurance provides in a world filled with confusion and discouragement. What peace and security come to the heart that understands that God in heaven knows us and cares about us individually and collectively, and that He communicates with us either directly or through His living prophets according to our needs. My dear friends, I testify to you that this is true and that the Father and the Son appeared in wondrous vision to young Joseph as a step in the restoring of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the earth. Through subsequent equally miraculous experiences, Joseph Smith was God's instrument in translating from ancient records a book of Scripture, the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, restoring priesthood authority, restoring sealing keys to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, establishing the restored Church of Jesus Christ in these latter days 
with the fullness of the gospel as taught in the meridian of time by the Savior and his apostles, fulfilling biblical prophecy and preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. During the Orlando Temple Tours, I explained to our guests who were not of our faith that I understood if they found this message a bit overwhelming. I taught my new friends in Orlando, as I teach here this morning, that either the gospel has been restored or it has not. Either the Savior's original Church and its doctrine were lost or they were not. Either Joseph Smith had that remarkable vision or he did not. The Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ or it is not. Either the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ was restored to the earth through God's chosen Latter-day Prophet or it was not. The truth really is not any more complicated than that. Either these things happened just as I have testified or they did not. As a Latter-day Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, my testimony and the testimony of millions of faithful members of the Church the world over is that what I have told you this morning is true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been restored to the earth through Joseph Smith and is administered today by a living prophet. These things I know. This information is valuable to each of us only if we know for ourselves that it is true. Thankfully, we have a simple but certain way to know. It requires some effort and sincere prayer, but it is worth it. In the last chapter of the Book of Mormon, an ancient prophet named Moroni gave a significant promise to those who would one day read this sacred book of Scripture. His promise applies to every sincere seeker of truth. He wrote, And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God the Eternal Father in the name of Christ if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know all things. Moroni urges us to go directly to the source of truth for answers to our questions. If we seek him humbly and sincerely, he will help us discern truth from error. As the Savior himself assured his disciples, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Brothers and sisters, we know the truth. Because we do, we are expected to share it with all of our Heavenly Father's children. To our dear friends of the Church, please do not let pass this opportunity to receive personal revelation from God. Consider what I have said. Weigh it carefully. Measure it against the things you believe. Hold fast to all that is true. And add to that the fullness of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Take into account what you have felt as you have listened. 
You can know if these things are true by asking God. Listen for His answer. Then respond to what you feel. If you will do so, I believe you will come to know, as I know, that Jesus, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is God's true Church upon the earth. Now may God bless you, my dear friends, with peace and joy the gospel gives. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A few years ago, I was in a Salt Lake hospital, it was an emergency room with my sons and their neighbor boy. It was the result of a backyard touch football game. While we waited in the emergency room for the doctor to put one of the participants back together, we saw a young lady brought into the hospital. She may have been 17, tall, willowy, well-dressed, and having a wild reaction to an overdose of drugs. While we watched, she collapsed, and I thought, there is no way this child can survive this experience. I wondered how she had come to this sad situation in her, in her life. Had she not heard the words of the prophets? Had she heard them and laughed as if they were the warnings of men out of touch with the realities of the modern world? Had one of us been negligent in our opportunities to teach her? Had her parents known the truth but not been willing or able to help her understand? While waiting in that hospital, thinking, pondering, and praying for her, I recalled a principle the Lord teaches us in the 89th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. It is found in the fourth verse. Quote, Behold, verily thus saith the Lord unto you, in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, I have warned you and forewarned you by giving unto you this word of wisdom by revelation. Close quote. Consider carefully the principle. I have warned you and forewarned you by revelation. We in this Church stand before the world in all humility and sincerity and declare that Joseph Smith, Jr. was raised up by the Lord Jesus Christ and appointed to be the mortal instrument through which the doctrines, powers, keys, priesthood, and ordinances were restored to the earth. Since that day, there has been a continual flow of revelation through those who have followed as the Lord's appointed apostles and prophets. Yesterday, we sustained Howard W. Hunter as the president of the Church and as the prophet, seer, and revelator. I wonder if we have any concept of the importance of that event. It is worth some pondering and some praying. But let me point out that President Hunter has sat as one of those men who hold this sacred revelatory power for 35 years. He whom the Lord has called and we have sustained is not a novice in the principles, process, and practice of receiving divine direction. There is a question that each of us must deal with in a most solemn and serious way if our lives are to be what the Father of us all would have them be. What is our response when the living prophets declare the mind and the will of the Lord? This is the test of mankind in every dispensation. 
I sat in this tabernacle some years ago as President Joseph Fielding Smith stood at this pulpit. It was the General Priesthood Meeting of April 1972, the last general conference before President Smith passed away. He said, quote, There is one thing we should have exceedingly clear in our minds. Neither the President of the Church nor the First Presidency nor the united voice of the First Presidency and the Twelve will ever lead the Saints astray or send forth counsel to the world that is contrary to the mind and will of the Lord. Close quote. There came to me that evening a witness of the Spirit that he spoke the truth. I felt an overwhelming sense of peace and assurance that the Lord loved us and would not leave us without direction. President J. Reuben Clark drew a very important distinction concerning revelation from the Lord. Quote, Some of the general authorities have had assigned to them a special calling. They possess a special gift. They are sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators, which gives them a special spiritual endowment in connection with their teaching of the people. They have the right, the power, and authority to declare the mind and will of God to His people, subject to the overall power and authority of the President of the Church. President Clark continues, Others of the general authorities are not given this special spiritual endowment and authority covering their teaching. They have a resulting limitation. And the resulting limitation upon their power and authority in teaching applies to every other officer and member of the Church, for none of them is spiritually endowed as a prophet, seer, and revelator. Close quote. I emphasize that the rest of us do not have that specific power and authority. The seventy have an endowment that is uniquely theirs. Temple presidents and matrons, stake presidents and bishops, as well as fathers and mothers, have an endowment that is uniquely theirs. But none of us have the power, authority, or responsibility that is given to the First Presidency and the Twelve. You may wonder why I stress this point so strongly. It is because a misunderstanding here can cause us deep pain and can be the means of misleading many others. Those who claim similar powers often declare that they are doing it with purity of heart and with total sincerity. One's intentions may be of the purest kind. The sincerity may be total and complete. Nevertheless, pure intentions and heartfelt sincerity do not give members of the Church authority to declare doctrine which is not sustained by the living prophets. While we are members of the Church, we are not authorized to publicly declare our speculations as doctrine, nor to extend doctrinal positions to other conclusions based upon the reasoning of men and women, even by the brightest and most well-read among us. The prophets are not only called to receive the doctrine and direct the ordinances through the keys they hold, they are also responsible to keep the saving doctrine pure so that people can hear and feel the doctrine in its sure and certain form. Occasionally we have those who become a law unto themselves in these matters. Sadly, their pride leads them down a road which President Spencer W. Kimball warned us about. Quote, Apostasy usually begins with questions and doubt and criticism. They who garnish the sepulchres of the dead prophets begin now by stoning the living ones. They return to the pronouncements of the dead leaders and interpret them to be incompatible with present programs. 
they convinced themselves that there are discrepancies between the practices of the deceased and the leaders of the present. They allege love for the gospel and the Church, but charge that leaders are a little off the beam. Next, they say that while the gospel and the Church are divine, the leaders are fallen. Up to this time, it may be a passive thing, but now it becomes an active resistance, and frequently the blooming apostate begins to air his views and to crusade. He now begins to expect persecution and adopts a martyr complex, and when finally excommunication comes, he associates himself with other apostates to develop and strengthen cults. At this stage, he is likely to claim revelation for himself revelations from the Lord directing him in his interpretations and his actions. These manifestations are superior to anything from living leaders, he claims." Close quote. Almost without exception, as one finds himself or herself walking the road President Kimball just outlined, there will be priesthood leaders who will counsel and advise and even admonish the person. Many heed the counsel, but some do not. Counseling comes not just for our own benefit, but for the blessing of those who might be misled by something we might say or do. I have been deeply grateful to my brethren that they have cared enough to speak to me on occasion in plain words. Surrounded as we are by worldly influences, how can we maintain a sweetness of spirit and a humility that will make us receptive to such counsel? I fear that we have become so enamored with recreation, with fame and fortune, with videos, with television, and with what money can buy that we have little time for eternal things. We cannot take the time to obtain a knowledge of the doctrines of eternity, for that requires sacrifice, effort, and struggle. Furthermore, we have learned to live in a world of clamor and noise and haste and hurry to the extent that we have often become immune to the Spirit of the Lord and the peaceable things of the kingdom. How do we prepare ourselves to be in harmony with the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve? On one occasion during the Savior's mortal ministry, he was challenged by those who were opposing him. They wondered how a person could speak with such certainty without the education of the world. Quote, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. We must learn the will of our Father in heaven by earnest study. Next, we must act upon it. Study alone is not sufficient. We must act upon the words of Revelation before we know of a surety of the truthfulness of the doctrines. On the day the Church was organized in 1830, the Lord gave a wonderful promise to those who labor in the vineyard. Quote, For behold, I will bless all those who labor in my vineyard with a mighty blessing, and they shall believe on his, Joseph Smith's words, which are given him through me by the Comforter, which manifests that Jesus was crucified by sinful men for the sins of the world, yea, for the remission of sins under the contrite heart. Close quote. If we will follow with diligence, the counsel and instruction that is the united voice of these brethren, we will know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether they speak of themselves. In all solemnity and soberness, with a clear understanding of the consequences of a testimony born in this setting, 
may I state that God has made known to me in an unmistakable way that he has called and he sustains those who are the living prophets, seers, and revelators. The Lord God of Israel will direct them, and they will not lead us astray. When you see any document, any address, any letter, any instruction that is issued by the Council of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, it should be recognized for what it surely is, the mind and the will of the Lord to his people in this day. We do not need greater prophets. We need listening ears. We need hearts that are sufficiently pure that we can feel their words. We need souls that will commit to the keeping of our covenants. My prayer is that each of us may have that watershed experience of life, of having the Spirit carry with power, even fire, to our souls the assurance that we are being directed by His appointed servants. I pray that there will enter into our hearts the peace that comes by knowing from a power beyond all human ability to transmit that God is aware of us and has raised up servants in our day to lead us under the power and inspiration of His close attention. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When, when the funeral cortege traveled with the body of our beloved President Ezra Taft Benson to his final resting place at home in Idaho, every overpass was lined with people. There were along the way scouts in uniforms with flags. There were the elderly in camp chairs, even wheelchairs. Farmers left their equipment to stand in the field, and families dressed in their Sunday best paid their respects. Thousands of people expressing love for him, a spontaneous outpouring of love, all of which now is transferred to President Howard W. Hunter. His Physical limitations actually enhance his capacity as a prophet and seer. God bless him for the course that he has already set and the direction that he will yet give us. I speak to the youth of the Church who now face perilous times, as the Apostle Paul prophesied would come in the last days. In order to prepare you and protect you, I will tell you as plainly as I can what I have learned about personal revelation. There are two parts to your nature, your temple body born of mortal parents and your immortal spirit within. <clears throat> you are a son or daughter of God. Physically, you can see with eyes and hear with ears and touch and feel and learn. Through your intellect, you learn most of what you know about the world in which you live. But if you learn by reason only, you will never understand the spirit and how it works, regardless of how much you learn about other things. The scriptures teach us that Great men are not always wise. Spiritually, you may know not and know not 
that you know not, and be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Your spirit learns in a different way than does your intellect, for there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth understanding. And the Spirit of Christ lighteth every man that cometh into the world. I will use the words see and hear and feel to teach about revelation, but I will use them as they are used in the scriptures. Following baptism, in the ordinance of confirmation, you received the gift of the Holy Ghost. While the Holy Ghost may inspire all mankind, the gift carries the right to have it as a constant companion. It is by the power of the Holy Ghost that you may know the truth of all things. We are told that angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. We are even told that when we speak with the power of the Holy Ghost, we speak with the tongue or in the same language of angels. You have your agency. An inspiration does not, perhaps cannot, come unless you ask for it or someone asks for you. No message in the scripture is repeated more often than the invitation, even the command, to pray, to ask. Prayer is so essential a part of revelation that without it the veil may remain closed to you. Learn to pray. Pray often. Pray in your mind, in your heart. Pray on your knees. You must begin where you are. Pray even if you're like the prophet Alma when he was young and wayward, or if you were like Amulek of the closed mind who knew concerning these things yet would not know. Prayer is your personal key to heaven, the lock is on your side of the veil. But that's not all. To one who thought that revelation would flow without effort, the Lord said, You have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it were to ask me. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. This burning in the bosom is not purely a physical sensation. It is more like a warm light shining within your being. Describing the promptings from the Holy Ghost to one who has not had them is very difficult. Such promptings are personal and strictly private. The Holy Ghost speaks with a voice that you feel more than you hear. It is described as a still, small voice. And while we speak of listening to the whisperings of the Spirit, most often one describes a spiritual prompting by saying, I had a feeling. The Prophet Joseph Smith explained, a person may profit by noticing the first intimations of the spirit of revelation. For instance, when you feel pure intelligence flowing into you, it may give you sudden strokes of ideas so that by noticing it, 
you may find it fulfilled the same day or soon. Those things that were presented unto your mind by the Spirit of God will come to pass. And thus, by learning the Spirit of God and understanding it, you may grow into the principle of revelation until you become perfect in Christ Jesus. Revelation comes as words we feel more than hear. Nephi told his wayward brothers who were visited by an angel, ye were past feeling that ye could not feel his word. The scriptures are full of such expressions as the veil <clears throat> was taken from our minds and the eyes of our understanding were opened. Or, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart. Or, I did enlighten thy mind. Or, speak the thoughts that I shall put into your hearts. There are hundreds of verses which teach of revelation. President Marion G. Romney, quoting the prophet Enos, said, While I was thus struggling in the Spirit, behold, the voice of the Lord came into my mind. Enos then related what the Lord put into his mind. This, President Romney said, is a very common means of revelation. It comes into one's mind in words and sentences. With this medium of revelation, I am personally well acquainted. We do not seek for spectacular experiences. President Spencer W. Kimball spoke of the many who have no ear for spiritual messages when they come in common dress. Expecting the spectacular, one may not be fully alerted to the constant flow of revealed communication. This voice of the Spirit speaks gently, prompting you what to do or what to say, or it may caution or warn you. Ignore or disobey these promptings, and the Spirit will leave you. It's your choice, your agency. The flow of revelation depends on your faith. You exercise faith by causing or making your mind accept or believe as truth that which you cannot by reason alone prove for certainty. The first exercising of your faith should be your acceptance of Christ and his atonement. As you test gospel principles by believing without knowing, the Spirit will begin to teach you. Gradually, your faith will be replaced with knowledge. You will be able to discern or to see with spiritual eyes. Be believing and your faith will be constantly replenished, your knowledge of the truth increased, and your testimony of the Redeemer, of the resurrection, of the restoration will be as a well of living water springing up into everlasting life. You may then receive guidance on practical decisions in everyday life. Your body is the instrument of your mind. In your emotions, the spirit and the body come closest to being one. What you learn spiritually depends to a degree on how you treat your body. That is why the word of wisdom is so important. 
The habit-forming substances prohibited by that revelation, tea, coffee, liquor, tobacco, interfere with the delicate feelings of spiritual communication, just as other addictive drugs will do. Do not ignore the word of wisdom, for that may cost you the great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures promised to those who keep it. And good health is an added blessing. Make wholesome music of all kinds a part of your life. Then learn what sacred music has to do with revelation. The Lord said, My soul delighteth in the song of the heart, yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me and shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. Secular music may be inspiring in a classic, classical or popular sense, but it will not prepare your mind to be instructed by the Spirit, as will sacred music. The Apostle Paul counseled the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Prelude music, reverently played, is nourishment for the spirit. It invites inspiration. That is the time to do, as the poet said, go to your bosom and ask your heart what it doth know. Do not ever disturb prelude music for others. For reverence is essential to revelation. Be still, he said, and know that I am God. Now a warning. Some music is spiritually very destructive. You young people know what kind that is. The tempo, the sounds, and the lifestyle of those who perform it repel the spirit. It is far more dangerous than you may suppose, for it can smother your spiritual senses. Now, young people, pay attention. Before I say another word about personal revelation, I must tell you so that you cannot possibly misunderstand. There are many spirits which are false spirits. There can be counterfeit revelations, promptings from the devil, temptations, As long as you live, in one way or another, the adversary will try to lead you astray. For after this manner doth the devil work, for he persuadeth no man to do good, no, not one, neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. The prophet Joseph Smith said that nothing is a greater injury to the children of men than to be under the influence of a false spirit when they think they have the Spirit of God. The seventh chapter of Moroni in the Book of Mormon tells you how to test spiritual promptings. Read it carefully over and over. By trial and some error, you will learn to heed these promptings. If ever you receive a prompting to do something that makes you feel uneasy, something you know in your mind to be wrong and contrary to the principles of righteousness, do not respond to it. The Lord reveals his will 
through dreams and visions, visitations, through angels, through his own voice, and through the voice of his servants. Whether by mine own voice, he said, or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. The Lord's house is a house of order. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that it is contrary to the economy of God for any member of the Church or anyone else to receive instruction for those in authority higher than themselves. You may receive revelation individually, as a parent, for your family, or for those for whom you were responsible as a leader or teacher, having been properly called and set apart. If one becomes critical and harbors negative feelings, the Spirit will withdraw. Only when they repent will the Spirit return. My experience is that the channels of inspiration always follow that order. You are safe following your leaders. Now do not suppose that you will be spared from sorrow, disappointment, failure, fear. These come to all. They are essential to our testing. When sore trials come, you will learn why the Holy Ghost is called the Comforter. You must face life led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which you should do, just as Nephi did. You may not yet have a certain witness that Jesus is the Christ. Exercise your faith and trust in those who do. I have that certain witness. It came to me in my youth. During those early periods of doubt, I leaned on the testimony of a seminary teacher. Although I did not know, somehow I knew that he knew. The Lord said, If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come unto you. I bear witness of the power of the Spirit, and thank God that this incomparable gift is given to you, our youth, to guide you as you move forward to a happy life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.